0: Only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun
1: in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done
0: it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.
2: It is hard to believe that it is upon us, and by that I mean several things that are upon us. The weekend of the running of the 105th running of the greatest spectacle in racing, the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Carb Day is now in the books. We are here for the last installment, at least for this May, of Beyond the Bricks. Along with Mike Thompson, my name is Jake Query, and there are several people to thank for this program, but most notably to thank all of you for listening to it and making it fun for us to do. Mike, we have done a lot in the course of the last month that has flown by. We have talked about drivers. We have talked about memorabilia. We have talked about songs. We have introduced the world to the greatness that was the Menudo Indianapolis tune. Uh, We've done a lot of things. It's gone by very quickly, and quite simply, it has been an honor to be able to talk about the greatest event in the world. I've had a blast, and I'm,
3: I'll am i be candid, very bummed that this is the last show for now. So hopefully we get to do this more often in the future because I've had a blast doing it. I've been really, really gratified with the response because, you know, I honestly wasn't sure what kind of response we'd get. You know, I didn't know somebody would kind of write in and go, hey, neither you guys or Donald, you know, or, you know, I mean, what kind of response are we going to get? And everybody's been so kind. Everybody's been sending in such really nice uh, Twitter messages and emails to me, and and saying such nice things. And people have been stopping me in the garage area and saying, "Hey, aren't you that guy who does uh, Beyond the Bricks with Jake Query?" And I was, I first time it actually happened to me, I was actually kind of taken aback by it. And I said, "Yeah." And I then I thought, "Okay, what's he going to say about it?" And He goes, "Oh, I love that." He goes, "He goes, I love the show." He goes, "I've been downloading all the podcasts and and listening to them." And so I'm really gratified with with the response we've gotten, and I really appreciate. Uh, the opportunity that you and I have gotten to do this show and and the response we've gotten
2: for it. Tonight for the program, we're going to do something that we did on the Friday before qualifying, and that is talking about near misses. Because when you talk about the Indianapolis 500-mile race, part of the greatness of the race itself is Tony Kanon is the one that said that the track reaches out and selects its winners – and the thing about the 500 to me that is so great is there really are no fluke winners it's not like other events where there's somebody on the list that, that you would say historically well who is that they they didn't do anything anywhere else no if that was the case for anybody it was it springboarded them or it put them into a stratosphere that ultimately proved to be that they were worthy of being on the list of champions of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. But there are those races, as we talked about on that day before qualifying. In the 80s, there were those drivers that victory slipped between their fingers, and in some cases, it simply meant that they didn't have more wins than they ultimately got in Indianapolis. And in other cases, it was their chance at immortality that eluded them except for the fact that maybe they'll always be discussed in that breath. I don't know. There are great drivers that did never win the Indianapolis 500. Ted Horn comes to mind. Rex Mays comes to mind. Kevin Kogan was a very talented driver that we talked about in the 80s. Roberto Guerrero, another one that victory eluded him. And so tonight we talk about those drivers that are in the same category that narrowly missed getting that swig of milk, narrowly missed getting the winner's ring, Narrowly missed having their likeness on the Borg Warner Trophy, maybe not for a first time, but additional time. As we take a look at the near misses, if you will, of the 1990s. And what a decade it was. It began with a driver, as I talked about. Sometimes the Indianapolis Motor Speedway reaches out and selects its winner, and it selects a winner that for whatever reason, just took like a duck to water at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway despite not having a huge resume outside of 16th and Georgetown. And the decade of the 90s began... Now, Mike, are you one of these that believes the, de- the decade began in 91 or in 1990? Uh, I always say 1990. Okay, I'm with you. Um, Ari Liondike was, of course, your winner in the Domino's Pizza fast one. Hot one. Well, hot one, but it was... I know it was, I, I said that incorrectly. Hot one, but it was car 30 because it was 30 minutes or less the fast delivery of Domino's that's pizza correct. so that's but, what but it was it
3: the Do- it was entered as the Domino's Pizza Hot One
2: and so he wins in 1990 but he was a fast one too because it was the mm-hmm. fastest race on record 185.981 miles an hour which was a record that stood for ever right it's been surpassed yeah it's been surpassed was uh, it Pagino? no tony Cannon, i believe that's the, you are correct tony Cannon's race that surpassed it. That was the race I remember on the radio network. We were saying, commenting how long we had gone, how deep into it without a caution. And then, of course, you never say it yeah. because what happens? But that a caution, was a caution Caution eventually came out. But Ari Leondike opens the decade with, I believe, Mike, his first major open-wheel win, right? That's correct. At Indianapolis in the 1990 five hundred, And then in 1991, the Diamond Jubilee Edition, as Bob Jenkins had called it, May 26th of 1991, it was the 75th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. And a guy who was a rookie in 84, was a co-rookie of the year with Roberto Guerrero, who we've talked about, a guy who ultimately would end his career with the most laps led of anybody to never win the Indianapolis 500, Michael Andretti, who knocked on the door so many times, who dominated in 92, another near miss for him. But in 1991... Michael Andretti and Rick Mears came down to it when the race was getting down to the nitty-gritty, and they put on a heck of a show, and here's how it sounded.
0: The field comes off the fourth turn. The green flag waves. Here's the final 13 laps of the race. A drag race to turn number one. Rick Mears and Michael Andretti. Well, Rick Mears made a great move down low. He leads the way. Now, no, Andretti's got it going into the short shoot. He's a number two, and Michael Andretti's got the lead. And Rick looks to the inside. About a four five, six car length coming off the second quarter. They head up the back stretch towards Larry Henry. A good start for Michael Andretti. A shootout over the final 13 laps. You have them down there, Larry. Well, Michael Andretti should be heavier. He took fuel on board, but Rick Mears is slower right now, about seven car lengths behind. Michael Andretti trying to get his first Indianapolis 500 win. Michael Andretti through four running smooth. Rick Mears trying to really mid Coming down low, they head to the main straightaway, but it is still Michael Andretti, and Rick Mears is head toward turn one, and Jerry Baker. Former Cole rookie of the year, Michael Andretti. Now Mears goes to the outside, and Rick may have it. They move into the short shoot. Rick Mears takes the lead.
2: Excellent call by Jerry Baker on the IMS Radio Network as Rick Mears took the lead, held on to it, and Rick Mears went on to win his fourth Indianapolis 500-mile race. And as a matter of fact, really kind of pulled away. Uh, ended up winning by just over three seconds, did Rick Mears, in the 75th Indy 500. And Michael Andretti would have to wait another year to try to get his likeness on the Borg Warner Trophy. A couple of things that jump out at me there. Number one, it was amazing as Bob Lamy, and it was a great, great, great decision by Bob Jenkins to lay out and let it go straight from Lamy to Baker because by the time it came to Baker in turn number one, Rick Mears, a lap after that restart, Mike, he was absolutely on rails, and you could tell he just decided it's go time now, and he got right, Michael Andretti exactly back in the exact same fashion in which Andretti had just taken him.
3: Yeah, we're going to have some uh... – really interesting audio I think coming up here in a minute it's one of my favorite interviews I've ever done which is uh, I got a few minutes with Rick Mears one time and I asked him about that finish and If you ever get a chance to talk to Rick where you've got a few minutes with him, he's a very introspective guy, and and I don't think, again, he gets enough credit for being a a tactician driver. We always think of Rick Mears, Rocket Rick, right? He's the fastest. He's he's the pole winner, and he's always got the fastest car. And let's not forget, in this year, he was almost lapped earlier in the race. And if he would have gotten a lap down... He's basically said that would have been my race would have been over basically at that point, and he he caught a break. Michael had a, a, a tire I think went either went down or got cut, and so that saved Rick from going a lap down. And then Rick you know reeled him back in. And Rick's just a master strategist, and I don't think as a tactician and as a strategist Rick gets enough credit. And he talks a little bit about that in this interview I conducted with him a few years later.
2: Here's Rick Mears talking about the 1991 Indy 500.
1: Well, sure, and then that's like, uh, you know, you always heard Michael say afterward, I don't know where he came up with that speed at the end of the race. Well, that's, that's playing your hand. That's poker. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't going to show my hand till after the last stop. I saw he had a little understeer in his car, which is the safe way. And uh, so I thought, you know, if I show my hand before the last stop, because I wanted to get mine to where I knew exactly what I had before the last stop so I wouldn't have to change anything at the last stop. Because if I have to change something of the last stop, I could go too far. I could tip it over. And now I'm in trouble. So if he's solid and he's leading and he's, he's got everybody covered all day, he's not going to risk making a change in that last stop. So I'm not going to let him know I've got him covered until after the last stop. And that's basically what happened. He kept it solid. You know, he didn't make a change. If I'd have shown my hand earlier, he'd have, he'd have taken a gamble and, and, and tried to put some more front wing in the car, and tried to make the car a little quicker for the shootout at the end. But he thought he had me covered until after that stop. And but but then the, the passing back and forth, I knew he was going to pass me on the restart. I mean that that was a fact because I got I got blocked a little bit by um, it was I forget is Al Jr. and uh, John Andretti I think in front of me. And I was drafting up behind whoever was, the one that was in front of me. And when I, just as I got right to him and jumped out to go around him, he jumped out to go around the car ahead of him. Not through any fault, that's what he had to do. And the timing was that I had to lift to keep from hitting him. Now I jump over again, we got a three car hole in the air and that's just sucking Michael along big time. And he's always quick on restarts anyway. So I knew he was going by and, and we aren't up to speed yet. So that means the groove is very wide in turn one. He could run anywhere, so I just went to the bottom, and gave him the long way around, and um, and then he entered too low to kind of block me, which helped me get the run back at him. If he had stayed up high, and went through two, you know, the best line he could take, I might not have gotten to him the very next lap. It may have been the lap after, but um, and then when we came back to it, you know, round to one, he hesitated, didn't know which way I was going to go, and and. And so he, he kind of froze and stayed in the middle, and that left the outside lane open. And I knew he had to understeer, so I was hoping he was going to have to go to the apron. And when I drove up beside him and I watched him, stayed on him, and when I saw him dive to the apron, then I knew that was going to help me keep the front end of the car enough to stay in the throttle. And from that point on, once we, once we cleared him, then I knew we had a good car. You know. And then as a matter of stay focused, no mistakes, and, and go, and, and, and we were good until... Mario caused the next shell and the next restart. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's part of what made the fourth one the best of the four. Uh, having that shootout at the end and coming out on top and, and it kind of, it was kind of a, yeah, help make up for the others, you know, that didn't. So now it was, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was the most gratifying race I've ever had here.
2: Rick Mears on winning in 1991, Michael Andretti would have to wait until 1992 for another chance at his first Indianapolis 500 and, It certainly looked like it was going to come for him from the very beginning. His Kmart Texco Haviland machine was absolutely on rails. He jumped out to a massive lead at the beginning of the race from the green flag, did Michael Andretti over his father, Mario Andretti. As a matter of fact, all told, Michael Andretti led 160 laps of the 1992 Indianapolis 500. But late in the race, he passed Aloncer Sr. And when he did so... He had said that he he got a sniff of something. He smelled something and wasn't sure exactly what it was. He thought actually that it might have been an issue that was taking place when he was passing by. You know, he asked himself, was somebody else losing an engine? And he realized, Mike, unfortunately, it was actually his car that was having the issue. Um, I know a lot of people,
3: there, there are different opinions on what drivers you like and what families you like, and there's some folks that are Unser fans and some folks that – if there's one group of people that I feel, just feel a pit in my stomach for, it's the Andretti family on race day 1992. You just have to feel for them because, you know, Mario had an accident and ended up at Methodist Hospital. Jeff had a very serious accident, ended up at Methodist Hospital. Michael is just dominating. I mean, dominating the race. Leads 160 of the first 188 laps I think it is and then has the the problem with his car. I mean, you just have to feel for the Andretti family on that day because the fact that they were just it was just such a rotten day for that that group and and Michael um you know, going back to 1991, one of the things that I think is so interesting about that interview is, you know, Rick is talking about playing poker with Michael. I've always thought that when Rick passed Michael back, and I've talked to Donald about this several times, when Rick passed Michael back in 1991 on the in the same way that Michael had just passed him, if you could have seen the error come out of the balloon, I think, in Michael's car, I think that was just kind of, that's it. Like, it's not going to be today, son you know because that was the end of that race it's like a it's like a boxer landing the final punch i mean it was over you know and unless unless rick broke or something happened rick was now going to win that race because it just took all the air out of the balloon for michael so then the next year he comes back and he's just dominating running away from everybody passing anybody and everybody at will and then you know he breaks with only a few laps to go so i mean i've always felt for michael in those that situation especially in 92 um you know, because of the fact that he was so dominant.
2: With 11 laps to go, in fact, the air went out of the balloon for Michael Andretti again in 1992. Al Unser Jr. was resigned to the fact in his Chevrolet engine that he was simply going to be best in show, as he called it, because Scott Goodyear was behind him, and he was fo- fairly convinced that they were racing for second position. The Ford Cosworth of and Michael Andretti finally slowed down on the backstretch, and that set up a shootout that would become one of the greatest finishes in the history of the Indianapolis 500 between Unser Jr. and Scott Goodyear.
0: Dwayne Sweeney waves the white flag. One to go. A three-car length separation between Unzer and Goodyear. And that's how they come through, number one. The gap gets closer and closer and closer in front of Gary Lane about three or four car lengths as they work off the second corner for the last time. Headed down the back stretch, headed right at you, Larry Henry. Scott Goodyear, Chuck right in behind Al Anser Jr. He's waiting, he's waiting about a car length and a half behind Al Jr. Al Jr. now lengthens it out. He's trying to hold him off. Goodyear low, down your high. They go to four, Bob Levy. Al Anser Jr. has the lead. One more turn to go. Here they come, coming to the finish line. Bob Jenkins, who's going to win it? The checkered flag is out. Goodyear makes a move. Little Al wins by just a few tenths of a second. Perhaps the closest finish in the history of the Indianapolis 500. Al Unzer Jr. has become the first second generation driver to win an Indianapolis 500. Al Unzer Jr. has done it.
2: Bob Jenkins on the call on the IMS radio network May 24th of 1992, the 76th. Indianapolis 500. Obviously, it was breathtaking because you could hear Derek Daly exhaling at the line, and Scott Goodyear settles for second. But Scott Goodyear would be heard from again in the decade when it comes to near misses, and it would come within the next couple of years. That's what we'll get to, among others, when we return to Beyond the Bricks. So coming off of the 92 finish, we enter into 1993, which was a race that was highlighted by Nigel Mansell's late lead and then being passed by Emerson Fittipaldi and Ari Leyendijk when Bobby Unser said, I just don't know if he realized how hungry these guys were to win the biggest race in the world. And Emerson Fittipaldi goes on to win his second Indianapolis 500-mile race. And then comes 1994. Fittipaldi was already in a situation where there was some controversy about him, as we had talked about earlier this week on the program, because of the selection to drink orange juice over the milk. We covered that earlier this week, and I think most people know about that. But Fittipaldi, as a result of that, despite being truly one of the real gentlemen that's raced at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, became a polarizing figure. And then you add to that the fact that Roger Penske comes with the beast, as it's known. The Mercedes engine that, between Emerson Fittipaldi and Alencer Jr., Mike, if you want to talk about some of the great ingenuities and engines that have come out and rolled out at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and absolutely caused every jaw within the place to drop, including that of its competitors, you would have a real short list of cars that would be above that Mercedes engine.
3: I agree, and we talked, uh, I think it was a couple of days ago, we talked about cars that you knew were going to win the race unless they broke, uh, and that was, we were talking about Johnny Rutherford and the Chaparral. Unless those cars broke, one of the Penske cars that year, of Al Jr. or Emerson Fittipaldi or Paul Tracy, one of those cars was going to win
2: the race. And Emerson Fittipaldi, despite the fact that Al Jr. was the pole sitter, and at the beginning of the race, I remember afterwards, Alencer Jr. had said he wanted to lead the first lap, and so he did, as he says. And then it wasn't long after that Emerson Fittipaldi took the lead, and Fittipaldi all of a sudden was, quite frankly, running away with it in his Marlboro-Pensky Mercedes. And Fittipaldi essentially had the field a lap down. As a matter of fact, He had everybody but Little Al a lap down, and he was going to lap Little Al into turn number four. Junior was making sure, doing everything he could to stay on the lead lap. And Emerson Fittipaldi was simply turning the laps down before he would go on to become a three-time winner of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. But then as he entered turn number four with just 10 laps to go, here's what happened to Emo.
0: Al Unzer Jr. has repassed his teammate, and so Al Unzer Jr. is back on the lead lap, but almost a full lap, and four, a crash. Got Emerson Fittipaldi, has hit the wall on the inside, coming through four. That means Al Unzer pulling away, but Emo, his teammate, hit the wall, coming through four, just down below us. He kept it going. It should be in the main straightaway. Unbelievable. The car comes to a stop just a few feet short of the start-finish line. Emo raises his hands as if to say, I can't believe what has happened. Happened. We are 16 laps away from the finish of the 500, and Emerson Fittipaldi is sitting here with the car stalled in the middle of the racetrack without a rear wing.
2: And of course, little did we know at that time. In 1994, Al Jr. went on to win. Afterwards, he said, "You know, the old vacuum cleaner got him." He talked about the fact that there was you had all of the marbles or the the rubber detritus, for lack of a better phrase, up in the outside of the wall. That combined with the win of turn four, if you got too high, it just kind of pulled you into the wall itself. And as Alan Jr. talked about, Emerson was trying to get him a lap down, went a little bit too high, and the old vacuum cleaner got him, and Alan Jr. went on to the win. But little did we know, Mike, at that time, that would be the swan song for Emerson Fittipaldi in the Indianapolis 500-mile race. I
3: will probably say something somewhat unpopular here. I think that whole situation – where people were cheering that he crashed is extremely sad. I think that the fact that there were fans cheering that Emerson crashed out of the race because of the orange juice situation, I just find that to be really, really a sad situation. Emerson, as you said, is an extremely, he's just a gentleman. He was always very good with the fans. He was extremely popular up until the orange juice situation. It was a mistake. It was something that I think if Emerson had the chance to take it back, he would have taken it back. But you hear in that clip, you know, fans cheering as soon as they see Emerson's out of the race, and you know that he's he's not going to win his third 500, and he never races in the Indianapolis 500 again. And I think the fact that the last image of Emerson Fittipaldi we have in the Indianapolis 500 is him crashing out of the race and people cheering the fact that he's out. um, I I just find that sad. That's just my personal opinion.
2: I, I don't disagree, Mike. But let me ask you. Let me play devil's advocate. Do you think people were and, – and no question there were those that were cheering because they felt it was the karma of the orange juice. By no, the that's, that's
3: absolutely why I think people were
2: cheering. But I also think late in the race when people – if you have a race where a guy is clicking away at laps and it's like, well, we're just ticking down the laps before this guy's going to win in runaway fashion. And then all of a sudden with 10 laps to go – a race to the finish is gifted upon you in your lap, and you're like, whoa. I mean, it's just the reaction of like, I can't believe what I've just seen. Holy cow. I mean, yes, there were people celebrating that the... I, I, I'll be honest with you. Would the, I, I would think the if, reaction have been the same?
3: If it was John Andretti, no. If it was... You see okay. what I'm saying? I, but
2: would the reaction have been the same, and would people have saluted him had they known that that was it? Oh, I don't know.
3: I mean, obviously, you can't know those situations. And and it's, you know, because then he comes back the next year, he doesn't make the field. And then there's, you know, he ends up having a, a career ending injury later on with and there was the split and there were all these other factors. Nobody could have known any of those things. But to me, that's just a sad situation. I I just think it's unfortunate that the last image we have of him in the Indianapolis 500 is, I mean, he's dominating. There's very few drivers that you could look down the list and say they led over 140 laps in the Indianapolis 500 that race and didn't win the race um and i just to me i've always thought that was sad i just it's just again it's just a personal opinion but i just find that to be sad
2: well retroactively i think it's a very fair statement in the moment i can understand why people did you know what i mean i mean in the moment i get it um
3: i'm just saying again i'm using other people as examples i mean if it's you know you know, Jack Villeneuve or whoever. I I can't imagine people would have been cheering that they crashed out of the race with a big lead, um, because if you if you felt if you felt uh, you know, hey, somebody that the, these guys, the Penske guys, are stinking up the show. Emerson crashing out didn't give the lead to somebody else. Another Pensky ended up winning the race. You know what I mean? So Correct. I get it. You know I what I mean? If you're you're not getting anything else by Emerson crashing out, another one of the quote unquote beasts ended up winning the race.
2: And a year later. It was a guy that also had a dramatic finish with Aloncer Jr. that found himself in position to win the race. I'm talking about 1995, and that was a crazy race because you had a second-year driver in Jacques Villeneuve who had an awesome-looking car who had been penalized for passing the pace car early in the race and found himself two laps down and then through a number of variables found himself back on the lead lap you had Scott Pruitt, who was leading the race late and had an incident that bumped him out. And the race kind of fell into favor, and it looked like the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was finally going to give its payback to Scott Goodyear, who had been involved in such a dramatic finish three years earlier with Allentz Jr. And here it comes down now to the fact where the race is coming down to a late restart in the ninety five race with Scott Goodyear in the lead. Now there had been an accident, and I believe that accident was with was it was it Pruitt or was it Vassar that caused the final it was Pruitt, was it not? Pruitt's was after Vassar, yeah. Well, which one brought out the caution that led to Scott Goodyear's
3: Pruitt was the last Pruitt's was the last yellow, I believe, of that race. Pruitt's accident was the last yellow.
2: But what I'm saying, that's the one that brought out the Scott Goodyear moment. Mm -hmm. So Pruitt brings out the caution flag. And it appears as though, because he has a sizable lead, that the race now has fallen into the lap of Scott Goodyear. Goodyear, as a result, is running in the front of the field. You are within the final 10 laps, they're getting ready for a restart and then Scott Goodyear with Jacques Villeneuve running behind him, the following takes place.
0: Well, the pace car is uh, still on the racetrack. Let's see. It moves through uh, corner number four, and Goodyear went around the pace car. He went around the pace car. The green flag is coming out. The pace car is now off the racetrack. We are under green at Indianapolis. We'll see what happens.
2: Now, He went around the pace car, Mike, and I know that you and I have talked about this, and let me begin by saying this. I love Scott Goodyear. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I remember I, I love Scott Goodyear as a person, as a driver, all of it. And I know at the time there was some controversy about it. You and I have talked about this, and you could hear it right there. I think that's a really telling audio clip because when you hear it, you could tell by Bob Jenkins saying it. There was no question about what happened.
3: I, I agree with everything you just said, especially the part about, I mean, I think the world of Scott Goodyear. I think he's one of the nicest people you'll ever want to meet, just a great guy. And I will say to you, and I think I have said this almost word for word to you, I think this is the least controversial, controversial moment in Indianapolis 500 history. I don't think there's any controversy whatsoever. I mean, I think it's a penalty. Um, and I again, I like Scott. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I just think that that's it is what it is. I mean, if you if you pass the pace car going as fast as Scott was, and I think he just I think he obviously was ready to to restart and and just made a mistake. And I, you know, I mean, I feel I feel terrible for Scott because, you know, that's a guy that should be on the Borg Warner Trophy and, and isn't and and we know he was capable of winning 500 mile races. He won the Michigan 500 twice, so I mean a great driver. But to me, that this was this was not a controversial penalty in my estimation whatsoever.
2: I, the reality is that earlier in the race, you know, Jacques Villeneuve had been penalized for passing the pace car, so. Is there the possibility – let me ask this before we get to what com, becomes for Scott Goodyear in this race. Is there the possibility that the excuse, for lack of a better phrase, can be made for Scott Goodyear, that the pace car should have been at a more accelerated pace than it was?
3: Well, I think we'll have a clip maybe in the next segment with Donald where he explains it a little bit, but the pace car was going faster on the last restart than it had all day, and the, the visual – Evidence. It's a little bit kind of a, one of those mind tricks because Scott is going so fast that it looks like the pace car is standing still when the pace car on the last restart was going faster than it had been any other time throughout the entire race.
2: So, as it happens, Scott Goodyear passes the pace car and it takes a lap or so, especially on the television broadcast for them. They were anticipating that there was going to be a scoring infraction levied and a penalty levied upon Scott Goodyear. But Goodyear went ahead and stayed out, had a sizable lead over Jacques Villeneuve, and then the word came from scoring.
0: Goodyear has the lead, but Johnny Rutherford, we assume, we don't want to put this in the record books right now, but we assume that he'll be penalized for passing the pace car. Well, that remains to be seen, just what call they make. If they say that uh, the pace car was down out of the way, then uh, that could be that he'll get a chance to get away with it, but I don't think so. It's about a six-second lead right now for Scott Goodyear. And indeed, the 24 car of Scott Goodyear will get the black flag. Goodyear is being penalized for passing the race, the pace car on a restart. And that is going to give the lead to Jacques Villeneuve.
2: So Jacques Villeneuve took over the lead. Jacques Villeneuve in front of the rookie, Christian Fittipaldi. And then Bobby Rahal, one, two, and three. Jacques Villeneuve goes on to win the race. Christian Fittipaldi second, Bobby Rahal third, Eliseo Salazar, Robbie Gordon, Mauricio Guzelman, Ari Leindyke, Teo Fabi, Danny Sullivan, Hiro Machusta, Alessandro Zampadri, Roberto Guerrero, and Brian Hurda all technically scored in front of the 14th place finishing Scott Goodyear because of that black flag. But what did Scott Goodyear have to say about it and what was some of the fallout from it? We will play that for you and get to yet another near miss of the 90s on this, the May Rap edition Payne. from of Papyrus, Beyond the Bricks. This is Indy
0: Car Racing 2.
2: That is beautiful. Jake Query, along with Mike Thompson, Beyond the Bricks. As we are talking about the 1995 Indianapolis 500, we played for you the fact that Scott Goodyear with victory in hand essentially on the final restart went past the pace car and it ultimately was shown the black uh, the black flag, as you heard Bob Jenkins and Johnny Rutherford talking about on the IMS radio network. But despite the fact that the black flag was being shown to Scott Goodyear and each time that 24, 24 car passed – they were leaning out and saying, you've got to come in and serve the penalty. Scott Goodyear decided actually never to serve said penalty. Uh,
4: And Steve was very calm in the radio, and I was very calm back to him. He just said, hey, they're going to disqualify you, say, for passing the pace car. Uh, You need to do a drive-through. And, um, you know, it was probably a half a lap later. I pushed the button very calmly and just said, "Uh, Steve, that's not going to happen. And um, there's no way for us to go back and win on that. And uh, he just pushed the button. He goes, "Uh, okay, see you after the race. And we just continued on and, you know, had how many second lead it was at the end of the event. And, uh, you know, because back in in karting days, I first lived that, you know, where you get a black flag and you didn't do anything wrong. You know, somebody, you know, thinks they saw something in the back of the course. And I did that. I mean, I came in early in my career and then you never got put back to where you should when it wasn't you that made the infraction. So I learned very early on in my career in karting that, you just stay out there, you continue to run, and then you come in and fight for it.
2: I actually agree with that mentality. I, I've thought this a lot. You can argue till the cows come home whether or not Scott Goodyear should have been penalized. But if you're Scott Goodyear, you're saying, well, here's the thing. Here's my thought process. If I come in to serve this black flag penalty, and then they determine that I shouldn't have been penalized, after the fact, and I've already come in, I'm running like ninth or whatever, they're not going to say, well, we think you probably would have won. But if I stay out here and I finish in front of everybody and then they determine that I shouldn't have been penalized, I'm the winner.
3: Yeah, that's the only op- the only option he had. Uh, it's exactly what you just said. I mean, if he comes in and, and serves his penalty and goes back out and he's seventh or eighth or whatever, there's no opportunity to get elevated to first. Uh, if, he, if he stays out front and finishes a front of the who ends up winning the race and then there's an opportunity to potentially protest if that's what they decide to do which they never did by the way they never filed a protest but you're right i mean if he comes in there's there's no opportunity to be the winner
2: now scott goodyear of course then as i had mentioned ends up being scored and and coming into the race at the end of the race he goes to the victory banquet as the 14th place car and he watches Jacques Villeneuve collect a check for $1.3 million and everything that goes with being the Indianapolis 500 winner. And it turns out, I'm not going to say an olive branch, but a conversation came up to talk to Scott Goodyear, right, to make sure that he was okay with all this. Right, Mike?
3: He had a conversation with Tom Binford, the, uh, the chief steward at the time, and I would say, based on the interview you're about to hear, that that conversation did not go exactly the way Tom Binford had hoped it would go.
2: Here is Scott Goodyear.
4: Matter of fact, the chief steward at that time, Tom Binford, came to me the uh, evening of the award ceremony in downtown Indianapolis after it was over. And we're walking out and he walked up to me and said, um, extended his hand to shake my hand and said, um, um, I wish you had to come in and serve the penalty. And I looked at him and I said, uh, what benefit of that? And he says, well, you would have finished probably sixth or seventh instead of I think we finished 14th. Um, clearly not a racer. I mean, because, you know what, that's not what I'm there for. You know, and you know when you've been so close, and you've and you've uh, finished second, and you're capable of winning this race. um, I didn't come here to be second or fifth or twelfth or anything of that nature. So, I um, I just politely excused myself before I said something that I probably would have regretted, and I I just walked away because um, it was clearly in my mind not the right call.
2: Now, Donald Davidson. And by the way, I love the. I love Goodyear's explanation of it and his mentality on it. I do. I I totally understand. Donald Davidson, the historian emeritus of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, his thoughts on the 1995 Goodyear, quote-unquote, controversy.
0: And some people were saying, oh, the pace car was going slower than it had all day. Actually, it was going faster than it had all day, except the optical illusion is that, that Scott's doing 200 miles an hour, and he went, you know, just blowing by it. But uh, so then Scott is out there, and and uh, the conversations are going on, and he's probably aware of the conversations. And you can't, you got to keep going. And then the black flag comes out. Well, what are you supposed to do? I mean, they may change their mind later, but if you came in, you gave it up. So I think they did the only thing that they could do. But but what a heartbreaker, because he clearly had it won.
2: Now. After all the years, and like I said, Scott Goodyear, for those of you that don't know him, is as nice. You know, he's a guy that loves racing. He's got – he helps kids with racing. He he spotted last year from Fernando Alonso. I mean, he's a great, great, great guy. And after all the years, and I'm sure he's been asked about it a billion times, and it's not easy, I, I'm sure. I can only imagine the pain that goes with being so close, not one but two different occasions – but even still, after all the years, some now, and it's hard to believe, really hard to believe, more than a quarter century later, uh, got to hand it to Scott Goodyear on this. He stands by his thoughts.
4: Well, you know, it's interesting because we have this conversation with uh, with our kids. You know, sometimes things are right and sometimes they are wrong. And in 95, uh, I've never agreed with it simply from the fact that uh, when you go across the finish line first and they don't throw the checkered flag and the guy behind you gets it, um, you know, it, it's very difficult to sit there and you can look at it you know five different ways if you want to but the key thing is, is that when the pace car is having some issues it's not really consistent all day um you know maybe i should have put it in neutral coming out of turn two and let him leave until i couldn't see him any further but you know i gave him a big space in in uh that day and let him get out of sight and uh then finally got in the gas going into turn three and i was shocked as anybody else that he was still sitting there but you know it's supposed to be uh, going a certain speed and then supposed to turn its lights off and get going to a hundred miles an hour. And, you know, I keep hearing reports. It was only still, we only doing 80 or whatever the scenario was. The, the end result was, you know, we got penalized. We got disqualified for something I don't think was correct. But all that being said, um, it's, you know, you feel like you're going to go back as I said a moment ago and have other opportunities to win, which we did. Uh, unfortunately we just never got a point where we had, um, victory so that's uh, you look back upon things and you go wish I could have changed it, but you can't.
2: Now with all of it said Mike and going back through all of it the one thing to me that's that, that kind of is the easiest to say in favor of the ruling is that for example Jacques Villeneuve was penalized for passing the pace car earlier in the race had Villeneuve not been penalized I think Goodyear has a much greater claim to make. But while he might have been correct in the fact that the pace of the pace car may not have been consistent, the ruling about passing
3: it was. That's correct. Um, The guy who won the race had already been penalized and was able to, through different circumstances, was able to make up his laps and, and win the race. But you're right. I mean, it's not like they hadn't already penalized somebody for the same infraction. So, Like I say, again, Scott is a great guy. I like Scott a lot, but uh, to me, it's a pretty cut-and-dry penalty, and it's not terribly controversial. And he's – I mean, that was an interview I conducted with him for one of our WIBC shows uh, we did a few years ago, May Moments. And, you know, he was right. He had other opportunities. I mean, 1997, don't forget there was that goofy finish where they basically – With him and Ari when they were teammates at Treadway and they dropped the green flag basically as Ari. They didn't they thought the race was going to end under yellow and they dropped the green basically just as Ari came across the yard of bricks and Ari didn't even know they were going to go green. And the yellow light was on and part of the track, and the green light was on in part of the track. And Scott really didn't get an opportunity to try to pass Ari there because nobody really knew they were going green. I mean, that was kind of a goofy finish. So, you know, I feel for Scott because he never you know, got on the Borg Warner trophy, but, uh, you know, it's one of those things that people are still talking about. In
2: 1996, obviously buddy Lazier ran away from Davy Jones on the last lap to win the 500. Then in 97, you had the incident again involving Scott Goodyear late in the race where they didn't know if they were going to green or caution. Goodyear got his chance because they threw the green flag late in the race. Lion Dyke held him off and Ari Lion gets his second win. 1998, Eddie Cheever wins the race. And then comes 1999, which was a race that, quite frankly, was kind of a curveball because there were a number of different cars that theoretically one could see winning that 99 race, and it was kind of one of those races that, I'll be honest with you, Mike, when I think about great races over the course of the 500 that I've attended, very little about that race other than really the ending jump out to me, to be completely honest with you. Um, what jumps out to, to me
3: about that race is almost everybody in the top 10 was named Robbie. Yeah. You're not kidding. I mean, like every guy, if you look down the top 10, like almost every guy is named Robbie, but yeah, it's not, first of all, it wasn't a memorable race for me because I, I honestly wasn't here for that. There was a couple of years that I, uh, I was not here 96, 97, 98, 99. I was, uh, I was elsewhere during those years. So, um, I didn't come back till 2000. So I wasn't, I wasn't even here for that, that race, but, um, yeah I mean it, I agree other than the finish, um, you know I remember Jeff Ward running really well and I, I you know being a little surprised by that because you know I, I thought of him as you know more of a you know motocross type guy or you know things like that but uh, I, I would agree with that statement. I me- I do remember that uh, I felt for Ari because you know Ari had a really good car and got caught up in you know an accident in the uh, in the pits situation and so i felt bad about that situation probably
2: how about this in terms of the top 11 finishers kenny jeff billy robbie 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 buddy robbie tony Hadeshi, davy jeff ward finished second by the way but robbie gordon who was one of those names that i just mentioned Finished in the fourth position in his Glidden Menards Oldsmobile Aurora. Looked like he might have actually been on his way to victory lane, Robbie Gordon. But lo and behold, we knew the fuel was light for Robbie Gordon. And here's what happened while he was leading.
0: Gordon with the lead. Slower traffic. Kenny Breck. Now Gordon's pulling in. Pulling in. Kenny Breck has got it. Robbie Gordon, we didn't think he could make it. Kenny Breck has picked up the lead now with one lap remaining.
2: And in fact, with one lap remaining, Kenny Breck went on to get the win. And of course, that also was the moment on ABC where Robbie Gordon dropped the king daddy of them all swear words over the radio, understandably so. They then took Kenny Breck's radio, thinking that would be the safer alternative to the language that was being exuded by Robbie Gordon, understandably so. And you could hear Robbie or Kenny Breck's team telling him that he was on his way to victory, to which Kenny Breck said, Nobody say a word until the blank checkered flag, and went ahead and went with the same language as did Robbie Gordon
3: that was also the race isn't that the race i think by the way i think i had a mistaken earlier i think ari got caught up in a wreck with tice carlson and then greg ray was the one who got caught up in the pit lane accident so i may have gotten that mixed up a little bit a minute ago but wasn't that the race that uh, aj said in victory lane i'm so wonderful i'm just so wonderful i'm
2: i'm so so wonderful (laughs) yes that is correct um He obviously was meaning to say, it is just so wonderful. I think what he was trying to say, A.J. Foyt, and that was the victory lane with Kenny Breck in victory lane where all of a sudden it started raining. There was the chance of rain all day, and it started pouring during the victory celebration for A.J. Foyt uh, and the power team of Kenny Breck's car. And I think Foyt was trying to say, like, I'm so excited or I'm so honored or I'm so happy. And he said, I'm just so wonderful. Donald tells a great story
3: of that, that situation, too, when Kenny Breck won because I guess Kenny got handed the, a phone, and it was the king of Sweden, I guess. Really? Yeah, and, and Kenny's talking to the king of Sweden, and AJ wanted him to get off the phone. And somebody told me, because, goes, well, he's talking to the king of Sweden, and I guess AJ said, well, tell him the king of Houston's ready to go.
2: <laughs> that's about right. <laughs> yeah, that's though, what
3: Donald it. tells that story. The king
2: of Houston and the king of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mike, you are the king of audio, and in the last 90 seconds that we have here – Uh, I want to thank you for this because it's been a lot of fun. We opened the month by talking about the fact that Donald Davidson cannot be replaced, and any attempt to do so by doing Talk of Gasoline Alley would have been futile at best. So we just kind of winged it, and I am not what we call a planner. I wing everything, and I'm very ad-lib oriented. That's probably not a good thing, and I can only imagine it's got to make life very difficult in working with me Uh, But everything that I basically asked for in terms of audio as we brainstormed each and every day, you were able to come through with it. I appreciate that,
3: and we had a really good time doing it. So I I appreciate that uh, you gave me the opportunity to do this show with you, and it's just been a blast, and I, I think it came out really good, and so I'm thrilled with how it worked out, and I'm thrilled with the reception we got.
2: I want to thank a couple of other people, by the way, over the course of this journey of doing Beyond the Bricks. First off, Brad Huber, who ran the board for us each and every night. Eddie Garrison came in and was able to do so in the few occasions that we had to tape ahead of time. It is very much appreciated. Um, Corbin Lingenfelter, I hope I said your last name correctly. Corbin has done the same, and we appreciate uh, his expertise in doing that. Jeff Rickard, the program director at 93.5107.5, the fan for reaching out to us uh, along with John Griffin and Joe Koppel to make it possible for us. And then, of course, it goes without saying, Donald Davidson, who there are a few people that Mike and I could talk about that we think more of than Donald. I also, as we get set for the 105th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race, want to say to people – Um, this race is special because not only is it the collection of humanity, but it's the collection of the human spirit. And there have been no men who more so embody to me, everything about this race that make it special than Bob Jenkins and Robin Miller, both of which are on their own journey here in this month of May. And I hope both of them very much know not only how much we enjoy their contributions to this race, but how much they are loved with it by not just me, but all of you who have listened. And now, with that said, I'm not the chief announcer, so I'm not going to say it in the direct terms, but stay tuned for the biggest race in the world.